As you already know, we have a guest speaker today. He, uh, he's, Roger is a family minister at the Unitarian Universalist Society of Sacramento, California. He has earned an MBA from Indiana University. Oh no, a few Hoosiers. I'm a product of a Hoosier also. Um, he received his Master's in Divinity from Meadville Lombard Seminary, and I just learned this morning he's working on his PhD at Star King Seminary in well, somewhere in California. Um, we're more partial to Meadville Lombard because that's where a bee went. Um, in his former life, Roger was an Illinois, no, Indi Illinois state official. No, that's not, working in the government in the state of Illinois. His web blog is called Ironic Schmoozer. I think that's kind of Unitarian, isn't it? Um, that kind of name. Um, you can find it on the, um, the Sacramento Society's website if you want to go there. Since we consider ourselves a food-based religion, Roger's most favorite foods are vegetables and desserts. Here's Roger. Thank you, Sue, and good morning again. Um, a, a couple of things. Uh, yeah, I, I was not a state official in Illinois because I'm not in prison. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was just uh, on the staff of some state officials and uh, for 10 years before I went to school, went to theological school at Meadville Lombard Theological School, which is how I uh, got to know your minister, Abhi Janamanchi. Uh, he was a year, uh, he came in a year after me, and so I got to know Abi and his family and uh, become uh, uh, good friends with them. And I'm uh, really uh, proud to, to be his friend and uh, honored to be invited by him to meet you and be here with you. Uh, he's uh, just a wonderful minister and uh, has a wonderful family, and I know that he loves this congregation and he's very dedicated to you and to our movement. A, a couple of other things, I, I am getting a, a doctor of ministry, not a PhD, which is, which is a little bit more focused and not quite as overwhelming. And uh, I'm getting it at Pacific School of Religion, which is across the street from our UU seminary uh, in Berkeley. But I live in Sacramento. And I wanna start this morning with a reading uh, from the newspaper, from an advice column uh, called uh, Money Manners, and it's, it's in our uh, paper, home, home in Sacramento, and it's syndicated. It's by Gene Fleming and Leonard Schwartz, and the column from early in January that I'm reading is uh, entitled, What to Do in Exchanging Gifts with a Cheapskate. And, and this letter won't rival the epistles of the Apostle Paul, but it is heartfelt. Dear Jean and Leonard, <clears throat> it happened again this Christmas. Each year my husband and I ask his brother what he and his family of four would like for Christmas, and each year William, 
reels off a list of pricey items that end up costing us a couple hundred dollars. In return, he sends us next to nothing. This year, a bargain basket DVD and some drugstore bubble bath. I can't stand another year of opening William's cheap gifts and then getting the credit card bill for the nice things we send his family. What should we do? By the way, William is not hurting for money. Sincerely, Nora. Dear Nora, if you can't stand playing Santa to William Scrooge, stop asking William what's on his wish list. As it is, you and your husband are putting yourselves in the position of either having to buy the expensive gifts that he wants or ignoring William's requests. Next year, instead of asking, buy your brother-in-law and his family presents of your choosing, presents you won't resent having bought when his gifts arrive. Here ends the reading. Get your finances in order, says the New Year's Day headline in the newspaper's business and money section. The article gives a checklist, reduce debt, watch your spending habits, get a discipline of saving money. Practical, important help. Yet beneath getting our finances in order is everyone's complicated relationship with money. This is a spiritual issue, and like other spiritual issues, it can't be taken up, taken care of by resolutions and checklists alone. It takes practice, patience, and honesty with ourselves. Nearly every faith tradition has something to say about money, about wealth, possessions, resources, and the needs of others. And our liberal religious tradition does as well. Liberal religion, our tradition, affirms the importance of this life, of this world, more than a future life or a future world. We do not dwell on otherworldly concerns, but on how we live in this world as it is. And money, as a medium of exchange, is one way that we connect with the world. We engage with the world one way. So without giving some attention to our relationship with money, we risk ignoring its power and its place in our lives. This is the message of Jacob Needleman, author of the book Money and the Meaning of Life. We are at risk of confusing money with our self-worth and our sense of possibility. In viewing others, we risk seeing money as a measure of character. In relating with others, we risk seeing money or using money as a substitute for love or as an expression of our hurt or hostility. We need to pay attention, be honest, and have some patience. I invite you to go, to go with me on a visit home to see relatives back in my home state three years ago. In the prior year, an aunt has passed away. My late uncle, her husband, had died 40 years before, when I was about five years old, the same age as their son. 
My aunt and my cousin moved far away from us the next year. I hadn't seen her for many years before her death. On this day of my visit, I am visiting two cousins and another aunt in my hometown. One of them asks, did you get your money? I look puzzled. Didn't you get the letter from the lawyer? No, I say, and then they tell me all about it. Our late Uncle Roy's estate included an amount of money for all of his nieces and nephews to be dispersed if the money remained after his wife would die. And now she has passed away. So every group of children of my uncle's brothers and sisters will get $48,000 to be divided among them in equal amounts. What this means is that a family of three siblings, three nephews and nieces, would share a bequest, each one getting 16000 And a lucky only child <laughs> will get the full $48,000. I express my surprise at this news. But they go get the letter to show me what it says, and I read it, and I look at the list of names on the, on the list. Everybody's there by names. My cousins, my brother, everybody, but not me. I'm left out. I'm not here, I say. Well, honey, you weren't born yet, one says. Yes, I was. I remember when he died. I'm the same age as his own son. My cousin came into our family, their family, and our family by adoption at age three. And he and I were the youngest of the cousins, both of us with quite older parents. Surely I was too young for Uncle Roy to decide that I was a bad nephew <laughs> and leave me out of his will on purpose. He just forgot me. What are you going to do, one of them asks, getting excited and curious and a bit nosy. Well, I'm not sure. I'll ask my brother about it. Anyway, it's only money. So for the rest of that visit in that house, we make small talk, but my mind is racing. Let's see, with my brother, each of us would receive $24,000. But I won't, because I was left out. Did my brother get this letter? He hasn't said anything about it since I arrived yesterday. I've been here 24 hours, and he hasn't mentioned it. Is he hiding it from me? I need to ask him. The others report that they had had a recent phone call from another cousin uh, one of those lucky only children. And this cousin happens to be the most outwardly accomplished of our generation of the family, the most successful and uh, apparently well-off. But in spite of having a hefty two-person household income, this successful relative never seems to have any money. And this cousin has been in touch with the others on that list and has demanded, sign that acceptance form and send it back into the lawyer's office soon so that the lawyer will send us the checks. And I realize that neither that cousin nor any of the other cousins 
is going to feel like including little old me in the calculation to receive some of the inheritance. The only chance is in my big brother's hands. My reaction to this news of a surprise inheritance, a potential inheritance, is like not feeling hungry and then walking into a dining room with a table of steaming delicious food. Suddenly I want some of everything. So I get in my rental car and I hit the highway to my brother's house. We've planned a dinner out together, just the two of us. I think, I'll wait and see if he brings it up. No, no, I need to get this over with. I worry because my brother, my older brother, has been worried about money, I think unrealistically so. He retired early, but his wife still has a great job. Their house is paid off, and he owns a rental property. However, we're now in the Great Recession, and he has no confidence in the government, and the angry talk radio programs just add to his anxiety. I think, well, I won't make a big deal out of this. Fights over money can tear a family apart. Before today, I didn't imagine having any money other than my own earnings and my own savings. I think, if he gives me half, I'll just give most of it away. That's what I'll do. Yes, I will. You know, in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, the brothers Jacob and Esau fight over their birthright, over their inheritance. Esau, as the firstborn son of Isaac, traditionally has the birthright in the family. Yet, when Esau comes back from a hunting trip, empty-handed and very hungry, Jacob offers Esau a bowl of stew from a, the pot that Jacob has prepared. And Esau is so hungry that he trades in his future inheritance for the short-term gain of satisfying his appetite, satisfying his craving. Later, the younger Jacob impersonates his brother to trick their blind, aged father into giving the fatherly blessing to him instead of to Esau. And in the story, this blessing cannot be taken back, cannot be transferred, even after the stealing is exposed. This theft, this family theft, launches a tumultuous future for the Hebrew people, and it sets a standard of disharmony for the whole human family. I think to myself, I don't want us to end up like those guys. I just want us to share. Now, I'm in my brother's kitchen. He's 12 years older than I am, bigger and stronger. He's standing. I'm sitting. I say, I need to talk to you about something. I tell him about my discovery, and I ask him if he's received the letter. He says no. Well, the others have. You will. I explain the situation and the humor of being the forgotten one. He doesn't get it. But I avoid asking straight out, will you give me half of your money? So I explain again. See, each set of siblings has to share each amount among themselves. And since there are two of us, each would get, oh, he says. He gets it. 
Yeah, I'll give you some of that money if you're nice to me. I want to ask, what do you mean by some? How big of a fraction is that? And what do you mean by nice? As a youth, I was not nice to my brother. Looking back in my childhood, I see that I was taking out my rage and my frustration on him. I was angry at our parents. They were distracted parents, not healthy, older than other kids' parents, and fragile. One was actively alcoholic. And I felt responsible and I felt careful. I, I was careful not to be a burden. My big brother was happy, athletic, popular. He was a safe target for my hostility, and he was strong enough to take it. And he took a lot of it from me. My brother married a year before finishing college against our father's angry wishes. And after graduation from college, he was unemployed for a long stretch. He mowed lawns to make money, and he borrowed money from our parents. Dad used this fact as a license to make my brother feel bad. Every $100 loan, every $100 loan was an I told you so. On my birthday one year, I got a windfall of cash. And I think I was also mowing lawns by that time myself. In any case, I was feeling flush. My big brother came to me and asked for a loan. $100. Imagine that, asking a, an 11-year-old for a loan so you could feed your family. Understandably, he didn't want to ask our dad again. So I lent him the money, and I confirmed the terms of the loan by mail. At age 11, I really liked using the typewriter and playing with business documents. So my brother would receive periodic statements of the debt that he owed. <laughs> and then postcards in the mail announcing, past due. I don't remember if he paid me right away, called me names, cried, or got our mom to make me lay off. It was not a nice way to treat him. I realize now that in pestering my brother, I was trying to make a connection with him. An awkward, hostile, counterproductive, 11-year-old way of connecting. When he moved closer to our home, my brother made some extra money outside of his regular job by doing small engine repair, lawnmowers and motorcycle engines. And and I was his agent. I put ads in the paper, and I took phone calls while he was at work. He paid me a small percentage for this role. I would type up statements for my commission. I took business reply envelopes from our father's office and used whiteout to change the name on the return address to my name. And I'd help my brother keep track of how much he owed me. $2 here, $3 there. Now he doesn't owe me anything, and there's a big check waiting for him. He can choose to split it with me 
or he can quite legally choose to keep it all. Fortunately, my brother, the firstborn son, has chosen to ignore my earlier treatment of him and to grant me forgiveness for it. Will he also grant me a full half of his money? He could say he needs it to save for his own two grown children. But he does eventually give me a half share. But he does seem to drag it out. He sends me a couple of installments. <laughs> and this time I do not send him a bill. <laughs> money has such pull for us, such power. Of course it does. Society is organized around it. It's how we interact for the things that we need and want and for the talents and the work that we have to offer. As a medium of exchange, money simplifies our transactions. But because it stands for so much that we need and want and love and fear, money makes life complicated. Most of us learn our attitudes and our habits regarding money from the family culture in which we grow up. Growth and healing from, from attitudes that are not helpful will take attention and effort and support. How did an 11-year-old loan shark like me learn a more healthy way with money. Well, maybe I haven't. I do have some annoying habits about money and some healthier ones, but I have my times of avoidance and my frantic moments with money. In many ways, however, I've healed and I've grown. I've received support in growing in relationship to money. And the support has come from two sources, from friends and from Unitarian Universalist communities. Friends who are generous, no matter their wealth or their poverty. Religious communities that remind me of the abundance and goodness of my life. In a Unitarian Universalist community, I am reminded to appreciate my blessings and to give thanks for them. I learn about the needs of the world beyond these walls. I learn about generosity. Over the past 25 years, as a Unitarian Universalist, I have learned from UU ministers and lay leaders and church members that it's possible to give, possible to stretch myself and feel good. I can give of my money and my talents and my time and feel joy in it. I can give and feel free. I can also feel good about earning money. Not only feeling gratitude to have money, but satisfaction that I have something to offer that people have chosen to support. Of course, mowing lawns for money can offer that same reward. And of course, with mowing lawns, the results are more certain than and more visible than they are sometimes with ministry. 
But as a fearful young person from a family that fought over money, I didn't know what it meant spiritually to be paid or to pay others to give or to receive. I did not know money from a spiritual, relational, emotional perspective. As a boy, I went with my mother to a mainline, moderate, Protestant church. I recall that they had an annual stewardship campaign, as most congregations do, and we paid a monthly pledge. But I didn't hear what stewardship really meant. Back when I was growing up in the 1970s, the church was timid about money and timid about the connection between money and your spiritual life. Of course, back then, the church was timid about sexuality, too which is another topic that makes people uncomfortable, but another topic that's really important to our lives. As an adult finding Unitarian Universalism, I found a place that looks at serious matters seriously, looks at real life honestly. And I learned there what stewardship means. And this is what stewardship means to me. It means taking a good look at what has been handed on to you for your use and your care. Whether it's the natural environment or your neighborhood or your country, it is handed on to you for using, tending, and passing along to others. Stewardship recognizes that we stand on the shoulders of generations and institutions that existed before we did. Stewardship recognizes that what we do, how we live, what we give, will affect the lives of others, including those who come after us. You know, we live for a brief moment in the stream of life, and the stream of life flows on. Stewardship is about connectedness and interdependence. It's about belonging to one another, belonging to the past and the future in the stream of life. A friend of mine back in California is a Mormon historian, a former Mormon who's a historian of Mormonism. And I ask him, does everybody there really give away 10% of their income to the church? Yes, he says, most of them do tithe, and they make offerings on top of that. In fact, he said, Mormons have the practice of a fast offering. And I've learned since then that a few other traditions have a fast offering as well. And so the way it works is that unless it will cause medical problems, they won't eat for one day a month, and they will give away the money they would have spent on food. They'll give it away so that others may eat. He says that the idea is that all of their bounty comes from God, and to make a tithe or an offering is merely to give some of it back. I learned when I was a new UU and a young adult, I learned from my ministers that there are UUs who have different ideas of God from the Mormons, and plenty of UUs who have the idea that there is no God at all, but who still have a practice of giving. 
still have a practice of generosity. And they make a goal of giving away a percentage of their income because they feel their connection to their community, to the human family, to the earth. In my Unitarian Universalist communities, I got the idea to set a target of giving away a percentage of my income every year. And I got the idea of setting a target of 10%. I started much lower than that, but I moved towards that target over time. And now I give about 5% of my yearly income to the congregation and about 5% to other organizations and causes and institutions and campaigns that I care about. I didn't learn to do this from my family. I learned it from people like you. I have read that Peter Singer, the professor of ethics who's rather controversial, gives away 20% of his income every year to important organizations. Peter Singer is an atheist, so he gives not out of the fear of God or for the love of God. He does it simply because he can and because he knows that his giving can make a big difference in the life.